0: Welcome to Day 3 of the ColbyCast Convention, Episode 111. Today, Bonnie, Jordan, and I are joined by Therese Prudlow and her husband, Dr. Don Prudlow, Dr. Carl Hassler, and Michelle Kim to discuss the treasures that can be found in Greek history, literature, and philosophy, and why this study is such an important part of Colby's curriculum. We're certainly blessed to have such wise and thoughtful people as part of our Colby community. I know you'll enjoy this conversation about the treasures that we have inherited from the ancient Greeks. I hope that you'll enjoy the show.
1: Hi there. I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age.
0: And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy.
2: And i'm jordan as a product of homeschooling i'm proud to teach greek and latin for colby online and serve as the alumni and public relations director
1: for more than a few colby academy students and their families the ninth grade year is their first introduction to colby classical education primary sources and names like herodotus and homer this foundational year sets the stage for a transformative high school experience hopefully rich in discovery and influential in the forming of young people who know truth in person and themselves, or are at least headed that way. Our ColbyCast convention continues today with a gathering of folks who are well-versed in subjects that together play a significant role in the typical freshman year experience of a Colby student. We've rounded these instructors up for a roundtable discussion about the Greek year with a sensitivity toward folks who are new to Colby, especially in high school, and those who are curious about Catholic classical education. It's my privilege to welcome back to the Colby Cast some familiar voices, starting with Mrs. Therese Prudlow, History Department Chair and Instructor, and her husband, Dr. Don Prudlow, Warren Professor of Catholic Studies in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of Tulsa. Hello, you two. How have you been? Hi, Bonnie. How are you? Thank you for having us back. It's good to see you. Don, how are you?
3: I'm doing fine. Thanks, Bonnie. I appreciate coming back every time.
1: Uh, we're happy to see you. I hear you've been globetrotting a little. That's right in keeping with a the theme we seem to be developing this summer here on the Colby Cast. Want to give us a rundown of your recent travels?
3: Took students from University of Tulsa, many of them Catholics from the Newman Center here to Rome for three weeks. Uh, and then I ran an academic conference there. And all the while I was had my sidekick, Peter, who's a Colby student. Uh, uh, at, uh, and so that we had a great time there.
1: Wow, wow we've been hearing about some changes coming this approaching school year. So would you tell us how you're serving Colby Academy these days? Yes.
4: Um, well, I have, I'm starting my seventh year here at Colby. And I was recently asked to take over the role I'll be helping out as department chair going forward here at the history department. So I'm some really big shoes to fill mm-hmm. as uh, Anne Angstberger. She's retired um, this year, but uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for things to come
1: in good hands with you uh, so what all are you going to be teaching this coming year
4: i will be teaching well our ancient greek history um i've been doing that since i first started here at colby and i love it uh i also be doing um our history 11 uh, era of christendom this okay. year as well as um one of our western civ 1 courses which covers sort of everything from the ancient world all the way up to you know uh, through the middle ages.
1: All right. That's quite an array. Okay. No homeroom this year, though.
4: I do. I Oh, and yes, I do. I have a homeroom as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: I always have. It. Every year I have a homeroom, I, I, which I
4: really, really, really enjoy. So I'm, look, I'm looking forward. I mean, it'll be a ninth grade this year. Sometimes I switch back and forth, but ninth grade homeroom this year. Yes. <laughs> Michelle and I will be doing that together.
1: <laughs> We're very excited. That all goes together. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fortunate students. We are also happy to have Dr. Carl Hassler back with us. Hello, Carl. How's next year looking for you teaching wise?
5: Hi, Bonnie. How are you? Um, All right. Gosh. It's been already a hectic summer. i am um, <laughs> been asked to teach History 12, American History, which since I've lived through a good portion of it, it's not that <laughs> difficult. But but. Still, there's a lot of reading to get under my belt. Plus, you know, uh, continual preparations for the courses that I've already taught in the, in the previous years. So I'm I'm getting ready to go already.
1: it's going to be here before we know it. I think we're just like hurtling through yeah. summertime here. Yeah. Indeed. Mrs. Michelle Kim has graced the Kobe cast a few times now. And yes, we'll have links to previous episodes to which these cast members have contributed in the show notes. Michelle, it looks like you'll be teaching a stout load of classes yourself this coming year. Would you tell us which?
6: I get to teach uh, English, composition, and grammar for uh, the high schoolers again, like I did last year, as well as English 10, composition, and logic. So I have the first year of those two courses under my belt and get to do that again. And then I get to teach Greek literature this year for the first Mm -hmm. time with children other than my own, students Mm -hmm. other than my own children. And I'll have homeroom nine again as well. And then very exciting too, Colby is adding writing workshops this Mm -hmm. coming school year. And so I'll have the beginning uh, writers workshop for the high schoolers as well.
1: Oh, that'll be great. They will really benefit from that, from your guidance there. Dr. Jordan Almanzar, skipper of the Colby cast, is with us today with plenty to contribute to this conversation. Hi, Jordan. How's your year ahead looking?
2: Hey, Bonnie. Um, my year is looking busy, like usual, teaching a, a bunch of classes, trying to, uh, trying to get as much writing done as I can before all that starts. So okay. the time's just flying by like, like usual.
1: <laughs> it is faster all the time. And another person with first-hand experience in these topics is my co-host, Stephen Hayden. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Who's your favorite greek year personality, be they deity or mortal?
0: Oh, Achilles. It has, to, it has to be Achilles. Okay, how come? Well, he's, I mean, basically, at least from he represents kind of the magnanimous man. I mean, the great souled person who thinks about things beyond this world. You know, his first time reading through, I was definitely a Hector guy. But then going back through the Iliad, it's just, boy, how can you not just admire the the greatness of, of Achilles?
1: OK, OK. All right. Well, that is a great segue into this roundtable discussion where we're setting you all up to have today. Jordan, I will turn it over to you to get that going
2: yeah sure thing um, I appreciate everybody uh, jumping on here with us uh, it's a good it's a good cast for this Colby cast a nice group of people every time that um, somebody somebody asks so who should we who should we have featured in this week or whatever I'm always trying to plug in uh, Don Prudlo, so (laughs) I suggest him for for pretty much everything so I'm just uh, I'm glad you came (laughs) glad you came to join us um this is uh this is sort of built uh as a roundtable discussion as we mentioned so it's a little bit different than than our normal episodes that we do which are more Q&A style Um, I do have, I I have a degree in history and literature but they don't ever allow me to teach those courses I always just teach languages so I'm going to rely on you guys to, uh, to to speak from your teaching experience. and I, I guess the, the first thing that maybe the listeners would be um, interested in is is what exactly are these uh, sequences that, that you find so often in classical programs? We have it here at Colby, and it's sort of a sequence that goes um, that follows an order: Greek, Roman, and then medieval, then modern. When you're going through history, and I want to see, um, I guess why 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 this sequence and why do we start with the Greeks? So I don't know. I, I'm thinking Carl may have some insight to this here. Carl, do you wanna you wanna explain this a little bit?
5: Oh, well, let's see. Why begin with the Greeks? Well, I I thought about this earlier today, and, and it seems to me that. Greek literature, Greek philosophy is foundational to Christian theology. The early Christian thinkers had to appeal to the Greek intellects and they had to appeal to the Greek intellects by knowing their literature not that they agreed with everything that went on in, in the ph- philosophical literary world, but they, they had to have, had to have a, a sense of it in order to be able to communicate with that society. The world that Christianity comes out of is a Greco-Roman world, really a Greco world with Roman influence to, to it. So they they had to be able to speak to those thinkers and the, that community. And so the Greeks are, are the perfect place to begin for a school and a curriculum like Colby's. That's what I came up with on the fly this morning when I was thinking about
2: it. Sounds good to me. What do you guys think? Certainly coming from a philosophy,
0: well, I mean, kind of liberal arts requirement, but I mean... The idea is brought up, you know, going from well, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the development of of those thoughts and 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 therefore studying the society or studying the literature, the things that are going on in a society that produces that, to me, again is that foundational sort of sort of thing of of Western thought. You if you I mean you can start with the pre-Socratics, I guess as well, and come up with things that people who are really thinking about things or from great thoughts it seems like that's the place that's the what's to start
6: i feel like too it also shows you know there's it's always interesting to see the ninth graders reactions to this literature and this history some of it can be kind of shocking to them especially if they grew up as as homeschoolers but you can also see this in in greek civilization the pinnacle of human achievement but there's such an obvious hole there. And Jesus himself comes along and brings all of that to its true pinnacle. And they're capable at this age of seeing that. And it's really beautiful to see them putting, putting that together.
2: Yeah, that, that reminds me of um, something that Miss Ellen Finnegan said at the, uh, at the graduation recently when she was, she was referencing, there's nothing new under the sun and that that was the the classical world. And that was their understanding that everything revolved, but that the students that go through a program like this and the Colby students specifically, when they hit the incarnation, they can point to it and say, this is new. This is something new. Um, I thought that was an excellent point. So uh, Therese, what what do you, I mean, now that you're the department chair I mean, and you've taught a range of courses. I mean, you, how do you see this, this Greek year playing into the goals that we have for the students to see something new?
4: Well, I think as you are all pointing out, I mean, it's that we view everything through that incarnational lens. Um, we can see the fullness of time, everything leading up before, coming after. And we, we go back to the Greeks, you know, because there, there was something that happened there that was important. I mean, there had to be. The, their empire that they created, it didn't last for any period of time. I mean, it, it's, it goes. And yet everyone keeps referencing back to them. The Romans go back to them. The Medievals go back to them. Everyone, why? Why do we keep doing, doing that? Um, and so starting with the Greeks, I think, is uh, is important. Something important happened there. It's, it's, you know, it's where we really start to see that written story of human achievements in there that written history and the Greeks uh, show us that and it, it's going to be taken by our early church fathers and and they discussed this how do we delve in well there was something important they they had seen something um, in the Greeks that is going to help lead and help us in our you know on our journey here and you know Don can talk to this even more so than I can but yeah I mean in, in the whole scope of all the history courses that we have at Colby, it's, it's the great starting point because they do, everything is pointing towards the incarnation, you know, the Greeks, the Romans, and then later it's pointing back, it's showing it all together, working in God's plan, which I think is, is really great. And that's what we're trying to show them here.
3: Colby does that so well. They put everything into these contexts that lead the student uh, where they need to, to be to find the truth. And to start with the Greeks, the Greeks are, in, in a lot of ways, the original humans. They humanize uh, us because of their achievements. Uh, we see glimmers in Sumeria, we see glimmers in Egypt, but nothing comparable to the Greek achievement. Uh, in particular, their, their concept of, of arete, Stephen was talking about how he as appreciated Achilles. Again, I'm, I'm still an unreconstructed Hector fan, uh, but uh, in Achilles, we do see that early type of Erete, that excellence, and that striving that is so characteristic, not only of the Greeks, but of the entire Western tradition, the tradition of curiosity and of striving. And then we see Socrates and the sculptors and the lawgivers pulling that down from the clouds and asking the vital question is, what is a good community? and What is uh, a good person? And Socrates gives us a, a very good impression of what a good person looks like in many of the platonic dialogues uh, that the students are so are so privileged to read uh, through this period. And then as you go through, you see how it all fits together, how the Romans incorporate this, how the Romans begin to practice what the Greeks preached as I always tell my students, uh, and then how the incarnation pieces, pieces it all together. And that question of Socrates, what is erete for a human uh, is manifested in the incarnation and so colby's colby's doing it exactly right
0: i thought of something more as everybody was bringing up these it's like all of these treasures from the from the greeks and then i, I remembered euclid my fit one of my favorites so those my first my first exposure to um really pure reasoning you know going from principles and and i mean you think Just all the things that you've mentioned, and then I could throw Euclid on top of that too. Even though we might not go through that, but just what treasures remain from from that from from the Greeks? I mean, that we still have that are unsurpassed in through all of these years.
2: Yeah, I I always uh, I always think of this um, this idea that that er the earliest Christians, although they breathed this Greco-Roman air and they, they knew it so well, they had, I mean, they were just a part of it. It was the zeitgeist, even of those early centuries, there was some sort of, uh, almost, um, almost rebellion against it. I don't know if rebellion's the right word, but you see Tertullian and some of these people reacting, uh, and, and St. Augustine himself sometimes sort of putting down the classical authors, um, but it feels like in this space of time, how far we've moved and, and paganism or the pagan world is no longer a threat, that things, things gradually became more appreciated by the church or by the sequence as you go through, maybe by the medieval period or something like that. Um, I, I do know that my students uh, have a much better grasp of Greek mythology, and Greek history than I certainly did at their age and maybe even at this age. I mean, um, so, I, so I encounter it through teaching, teaching Greek or, or teaching, teaching Latin, um, but they come with this, this broader knowledge because they've, they've been privy to read all of these texts. And um, I, I guess I would, I would just open up the discussion a little bit to the idea of studying ancient history in general in our time? What's the relevance of it? I mean, uh, Don, you're at a college and, and maybe are you seeing students majoring in this and being interested in these ideas to try to do it professionally as so many of us are doing it?
3: Well, we see it in so many ways where this is, they are attempting actively to forget this tradition, this tradition that gives birth to us And in doing so, they cut themselves off from the source of their own civilization, even the the source of their own particular ideological slants. And by embedding us in this, we embed ourselves not only in our own American experience, right? Our founding fathers look back to Pericles and Lycurgus and the lawgivers of the ancient world. Uh, we embed ourselves in the Western tradition and traditions of literature and language, and we embed ourselves in the Christian tradition. And uh, this, this attempt of, of collective forgetfulness is poisonous. And when students are exposed to this, they become almost instantly interested in it. Uh, we can't forget these things because uh, they, are, they make us who we are today. And the more we realize it, the more that we can be ourselves. The Greeks hold a mirror up to up to ourselves. And and when we look at it, we can see, wow, that is us. Uh, the more that people try to deface the mirror, the more they will become distance from their own human nature.
4: And I think a couple of you have already referenced this. It's It's we study the Greeks. It's not just in history that we're studying them too. We're doing it in literature. We're doing it in science. We're doing it through philosophy. We're doing, we're seeing it everywhere, right? Um, mathematics. Um, it's so important that the the basis of, of who we are and um, so much comes from them that it seems to be an appropriate place to begin. And, and, I, and what I love that Colby does is they they're giving it to you from all the different angles, right? So, you know, I may be reading Herodotus and Thucydides, but I know they're reading Homer over in literature. So, and they're covering that, and they're reading different parts of the of um, Plato over there. They're reading um, the Apology, and then I may I'm doing the Republic, um, and then in the philosophy classes, they're going to delve more deeply into some of the different uh, thoughts of Socrates and and those discussions. I mean we're trying to really form the whole person by coming at it from all these different areas that are so important.
2: Yeah, I guess I, we sh- I should have made that clear that, um, you're right, so, so the Greek year, it isn't just a Greek literature year or a Greek history year, but it's, it's, it's in all the subjects, so they refer to it, students do as the, the Greek year. Um, and it's interesting, I was just thinking about the sequence when i i learned greek before i learned latin and i've i've had multiple classical professors kind of say well that's backwards like you learn latin then you learn greek but when but when you approach approach it in these other subjects subject areas i guess this the, the sequence goes chronologically in many ways and it, and it really makes sense um yeah I'm wondering uh I'm wondering Carl what's what's been your experience with with students coming into your courses whether theology or whatever with this background this 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 kind of deep background in Greek history and literature
5: Well I noticed it a great deal this year in the philosophy class most of the most of the students that came into that class had read had read some of the Greeks had read some Plato and and that was quite impressive to me. They knew they knew something about Greek history. They had read Plato. They had read Saint Augustine. And and that made that made the first semester go very smoothly in a way that I was not expecting. Uh, and so that was that was that was really interesting to me. And, and it was a great reflection of the earlier grades and the, uh, and the curriculum at Colby. I, I wanna get back a little bit to what was said previously uh, to follow up on what Don said. I taught at college and university levels for 30 years and in that entire time, and it was all in public institutions. And in that entire time, it was clear that there was, not to over politicize this too much, but there was an attack against uh, a liberal education, a liberal arts education. I saw classics programs being cut. I saw requirements in philosophy being cut or, or just eliminated. Uh, if In Texas, if they could have cut the history and the government classes, they would have done that. But they're required by law. So there has been a concerted effort for years, for 30 years or more to minimize and diminish a liberal arts education. And I, and I think it's for the purpose of, of, you know, either dispelling a new storyline or to cut people off from their own story. And one of the great things about Colby and one of the things that I, I immediately fell in love with when I came here was we're encouraging the telling of the story, and particularly the telling of the incarnational story. And that, to me, is the saving grace of Colby Academy.
3: That's, I mean, that, everything you say is, is absolutely right. And, uh, and our Christian tradition demands this of us in a way that other traditions don't. There's, there's, a, there's a tension in Judaism and, and in Islam between religion and uh, reason and rationality. And uh, it's, it, it's not, it's, there is a tension in Christianity, but we are required by the incarnational principle to hold it together, no matter how difficult that is. And so we often point to Paul uh, at the Areopagus quoting writers from the Greek tradition, Uh, But I think much more deep is is the, the Greek text of the first chapter of the Gospel of John, where he incorporates Platonic language, consciously incorporates Platonic philosophical language in order to describe who Christ is. And Christ is in that sort of flat English translation, the word, but the reason, the rationale, the plan, the idea of the entire universe And that forces us to confront the tradition that those words come from. There was a movement 100, 150 years ago to say that Greek uh, thought had polluted Christianity. And they would point to a couple of these scattered early church thinkers like Tertullian. I like the way that Jordan put that Tertullian and some other guys. Yeah, it was basically him and a couple other guys. The rest of the patristic tradition, uh, even though they sometimes had misgivings, incorporated this wholesale uh, and uh, incorporated the Greek tradition wholesale where they could elide it with Christianity uh, and where they could, they disputed with with, uh, Greek thought. Uh, but we're required to do that. I mean, it's, this is not sort of an optional extra because we we think that Greek literature or Greek history is fun. It makes us who we are as Christians and the very incarnation of Christ, the logos of the universe demands our interaction with these intellectual traditions.
6: Following up on, on both of you that, I mean, that's why there is such a concerted effort to gut it from education. Because as soon as you do that, then... It's wide open for subjectivism, and um, the pinnacle of being human is pleasure and is self-determined. It's it's very deliberate, and I love that my children and Colby students and Colby families and Colby parents are not only being protected from that effort, but given the tools that they need to combat it.
5: I was just gonna add, and I don't remember where I was, uh, where I read this the other day, but we got to keep in mind that the first three centuries of, of the Christian church, they spoke Greek. They weren't speaking Latin. Latin comes really sort of fifth century and beyond. They're, they're predominantly Greek speakers. And, and I, I, it seems to me we forget that. And in forgetting that, we we you know, miss. A lot of the connections with the early Greek philosophers as a result, I think. So I, that was just something that came to my mind as as John was speaking
2: that that's interesting. That's interesting because the 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 two that I named are um, are Latin writers, you know, and one is the first, Tertullian. So maybe maybe the early Greek writers, maybe they never saw this break. I, I don't know what those motivations were from Tertullian. Um, I'm, I, I'm not, I, I can't nail him down, but, but this sort of fear of paganism, but maybe par- partially it's, a, it's this disconnect linguistically. I mean, he was the, the earliest Latin Christian writer.
3: Well, I mean, he also wrote this one in his heretical period. So he was not Orthodox at the time that he, that he wrote that. Uh, he was in his puritanical period which which wants to which wants to simplify and get back to the roots get back to the roots of things. So I don't think there's anything particular about Latin because the Latins had had uh, eagerly imbibed the Greeks as much as the as much as the Christians did. So uh, I don't think we can attribute it to that.
2: Yeah, um, it is it is interesting because even that that movement was sort of a it's sort of almost like a, a protestant idea of to get back get back um with this you know the, and, and that's what the protestants uh sort of did in the, in in the 16th century it was like getting earlier and earlier that continued um to the, all the way down to the historical jesus idea and this kind of thing where it's even earlier and earlier and earlier and um I wonder if students and and maybe, Michelle, you you may have some insight on this with with uh, with teaching your classes. I I just wonder if students can recognize the significance of of what they're actually reading and what they're doing. How how do we even have these texts that are that are over 2000 years old? Does that make an impression on students as you in, in your experience?
6: I think it makes a huge impression on them. I've been able to sub for um, Ellen Finnegan in her Greek literature classes a couple of times now. And it was about halfway through the year both times. And it ended up being the same exact lesson plan both times. So we were both kind of chuckling about that. But they are so hungry and thirsty for this and are so fascinated by somebody mentioned treasure earlier, I think you did, Stephen. They recognize it as the treasure that it is. And they have this fire to just go deep with it and pull it apart and examine it in light of their other classes, in light of who Jesus is, uh, in light of what's going on in our world today. And there's this great reverence and awe from them that I see that was just just even subbing for those couple of classes and seeing my own son's reaction to these texts when I homeschool, you know, use this in our homeschool curriculum. Uh, I'm really excited about Greek literature this year and I'm kind of giddy over getting to spend an entire year, uh, week by week, with them on it. So I think they they definitely recognize the dignity of it because it's so drastically different from what the world is offering them. It's so drastically different from a lot of things that they're reading and seeing uh, in our modern culture today. So it's beautiful to see their,
4: their respect and their all over it. And they're, like I said, their hunger for it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, you know, I love how you put that, Michelle. They, they're just, they're enthralled by it. And I, and I think, and one of the reasons I think that they're, they are so enthralled is that we're, we're giving them the text. We're giving them the primary source we're not giving them a textbook that says go learn about the Greeks no they're so they're connecting with these people and so many of the kids and this happens with our other primary source classes too they're like wow i, I feel like I, I know them i feel like I, I could be sitting in a room having a discussion with them i could be one of the interlocutors sitting there you know and having this great debate um they they really they you know because we're doing a primary source text class and every so often a lot of people like, what do you mean you let ninth graders read Herodotus? Why would you do that? Uh, it's like, no, it, it's, it's important. That's, this is the first, it's a translation, but it's, it's the first one and this first history and they're becoming friends with these people in a way through these, these texts. And so I think it, it can be daunting. For um, students and parents at first, but you know, between whether and I know Michelle, you had this experience. I homeschooled my own kids with this before I was teaching at Colby as well. Is you know the the course plans you, at Colby has are so good at sort of giving those highlights and laying it out and letting them really connect with it. And of course, in our online classes, we have our teachers which are trying to you know facilitate these discussions with the students, but it's the texts themselves that are getting, and the kids get excited about, they they get to be, they feel like they're part of it and they're part of this world. And and so it it helps them to recognize it.
6: I saw that last year in Homeroom as well. I had two Homeroom 9 sections last year and the second half of Homeroom is a study hall. And so you have little text boxes set up in the Adobe Connect classroom that are subject specific. And man, those history and literature chat boxes were constantly on fire. And they're like, can you believe that he did this? And have you read Herodotus yet this week? And I mean, it's just, it's really amazing how excited they are over it. And they make little inside jokes about it and they come up with these key phrases that they toss back and forth for the rest of the year. Uh, so yeah, they, it's very exciting to see their enthusiasm
4: they've made it their own. They've yes. made it their own. And yeah, it, this this past year, they were very excited. They were constantly begging for more discussion boards so they could keep talking after class because they really enjoyed it.
3: I can't tell you how many ancient Greek memes my son has created this year. <laughs> what a
0: contrast all of this is to what I think about, you know, the common ideas today, you know, basically that the of that hegelian sort of the world is constantly progressing at least that world spirit sort of idea and today largely that it's really impossible to actually have knowledge about things you know that you don't actually know and then to go back to the greeks you know where they're clearly superior thinkers to, to most of us today at least and the idea that you can you can come to to knowledge from even as I guess it was talked about as well, even outside the faith, you can just... I remember reading through aristotle you know many years ago now but but just being astonished that he can come to the idea of the unmoved mover you know that that there is a god and, and kind of throwing up these questions like well is the world the world's either eternal or it was created and here's the arguments for both and i'm going to go with that it, it's eternal but you think well okay you recognize the two logical options and, and then you you picked one and i was wrong but but then 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 i can't imagine what our church today would be like with with saint thomas not having the the greeks to pull from i mean the richest source of uh, that we have in the in the summa and the other writings of saint thomas I, it's just not it wouldn't be possible without standing on the the
3: shoulders of the earlier giants i guess i mean that's true that we tend to forget that all Western thought, not just Christian thought, but all Western thought until the 19th century was embedded either with a background of Plato or of Aristotle. All Christian thought was Platonic up until the 12th century, until St. Thomas uh, and his scholastic friends come. Uh, so much so that Alistair MacIntyre, the philosopher, can say today, well, really, there's only two choices. Either you're on Aristotle's side or you're on Nietzsche's side. Th- those are the two choices you have today. Everything can be boiled down to, the, to those two. Uh, and giving our students, and I know uh, Carl uh, uh, read uh, in modern. I was so impressed with the modern with the philosophy class that, that was offered by by Colby this year. Uh, and we're presenting our students with that. We're giving them the tools so that when they get into a broader world, when they get into a university world, they're not going to be lost. They're going to have they're going to have bearings. Well, that that just immediately
0: made me think of the Nicomachean i've said that properly ethics where which are so beautiful um again reading something ancient that that basically just com- can completely lay out why our christian ethics aren't only well we can see clearly by reason that these aren't just arbitrary rules or something imposed by religion but this is the way to happiness and that's what all men see and that but they had that down, you know, we keep forgetting it, obviously, but but the, that was it's been around for thousands of years. Outside of faith, you don't need the faith to even come to that same conclusion. It's just again incredible.
5: It was one of the highlights of the philosophy class that the students didn't appreciate the modern thinkers, at least until we got to Joseph Pieper, maritan and John Paul II. Leading up, to, well, they liked Kierkegaard too, but the other guys, Mill, Nietzsche, they could see right through that stuff. They saw right through it. They saw what it amounted to, and they didn't appreciate it. So that was that was a joy in the second semester.
2: That's a great validation that uh, <laughs> that they're reading things rightly. Um, I want to switch a little bit here and see if we can... Um, give any tips that that you might have especially um from the teacher all well all of us are educators here um how how can you do some of the practical things let's say somebody's listening to this episode and uh they're not going to have the benefit of being in the in the online classes this year to partake of the greek year they're going to be doing it from home reading original sources maybe the parents haven't read some of these sources and all of a sudden it's it's uh, up to them to, to provide this to their children, answer questions, those sorts of things. What kind of tips can you give for the really practical, how to make a reading schedule? And then how do we stick to it? And who do we go to for answers? I mean, you can email if, if, uh, if Don Prudlow wants to give his uh, personal email address, maybe uh, you can email him with any questions you might have. <laughs> but what are some practical things that, uh, that you might suggest, Therese?
4: Um- Yeah, I'll I'll post his email for you later, so you can, all my students can email him. Uh, It's a great idea, actually. I'm going to start adding that to my syllabus. So practical ideas, I mean, with our students and our families that choose to do it homeschool, uh, with our homeschool course plan, is it's okay to take your time and to look through the material. Use the, you know, we've taken a long time through the years sort of fine-tuning um those course plans and our different uh sources that we have for our families and and so take the time read i would always recommend read through the course plan sort of the background information first sort of get your bearings but then you know don't be afraid jump right in and take it in small bites and just start reading herodotus Um, it's it's a great story and it's exciting. And so if you're afraid, you know, just make sure they're breaking it up uh, in small chunks. Maybe start by reading it out loud um, together as a family, just to get started with it. And so everyone can sort of get the sense for the flow of, of the narrative and, and the literature and the, his way of speaking. And I think after you do that, maybe especially for the first week or two, and the students are going to, they're going to build confidence in reading it together with their family and their families will build, build confidence that, you know, especially if something that either it might be the first time for their parents to have read it, or it's been a, a number of years since they read it. Maybe they read it in college. So yeah, just take your time and in, in chunks, take it in small chunks. That would be sort of my first tip for them. And and you'll find that it'll start to flow. I, I'm sure Michelle has even more She is the the master at the homeroom study guides for all these kids.
6: (laughs) I love the idea, Teresa, of reading it out loud as a family. We're a big read aloud family. Most nights we have uh, read aloud time with all of our boys. And I think that it, it helps them to hear maybe you're stumbling over the language a little bit initially, and they see it that this is a family effort that Okay, it doesn't have to make sense to me as soon as I start reading it. I think that most students nearly universally acknowledge that after reading it for a few days or a few weeks, you get into the flow and you get used to that musicality of the language of, of that particular author. So I love the idea of reading aloud. I love the small chunks idea. My family we're a huge uh, family dinner uh, family and so family dinners are the place where i'm saying so you know what did you read today you know what did you hear what what really struck you and really they don't need a whole lot of prompting me from me anymore we've been doing this homeschooling thing for uh, two decades now so (laughs) they don't need a whole lot of prompting but when you're first starting out you know don't be afraid to just leave it in their court You know, trust me, uh, very few of the ninth graders this year uh, had ever encountered uh, the classics before, and it didn't take them long to get really excited about it and jump in. So ask them what they heard, uh, what really stood out to you, you know, whose actions stood out to you, uh, what turns of phrase stood out to you, and they might be a little quiet at first, but Find a time, really, if you can't do it daily, we do morning meetings in my house. Although as my teaching schedule has picked up, sometimes they're afternoon or evening meetings. And I'll sit down for, even if it's just 10 minutes with my older children who have been working mostly independently that day. And uh, just have a discussion, see what's on their mind. And they have so much to share. They have so much to share. And the more times that you do that as the parent teacher, the more comfortable that you both get Uh, at it and don't be afraid to use, Colby has amazing resources. We have those study guides with answer keys. We have the classics conference recordings to listen to. So even if you're doing listening to that while you're cooking dinner or um, getting up a little bit earlier or taking a quick lunch break and and reading some of those things, uh, to have it become a part of the rhythm of your family life will really help uh, a lot. And it's important to recognize and for them to see that you're going on this journey together.
3: I think Colby has a big advantage too in that it's a Catholic school and that we can emphasize that there's not just practical virtues, but there's intellectual virtues as well. These tasks, these are, these are hard texts. They're difficult and you're meant to struggle with them. Uh, and in so doing, you are going to acquire virtue and merit, your study is actually a good work. Your study is actually meritorious. God can be found in a classroom. And so this is something we need to, especially so many of our students are so good and pious. There's an old Dominican phrase that I really like that uh, for the intellectual worker, for the student or the teacher, the wood of your desk is the wood of your cross. Uh, and so that's that's something I think that, that we can that we can help teach our students
0: i remember going through that process myself I, I hadn't really been exposed to the classics until i went off to thomas aquinas college as a you know as just graduating from high school and what a what a good thing our students here at colby have that they're starting to develop those those excellent those virtues the, those habits and I, I loved the bit by bit sort of thing because for me i read a lot but i was reading mostly you know science fiction fantasies you know modern sort of stuff which is candy sort of like it doesn't you know for the most part not 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 something that challenged me so going in it reminded me kind of in looking back it reminded me of working out you know like when you're starting exercise and at first it's just painful and exhausting but if you just do it little bits a little bit then eventually you build up that strength those habits and and uh yeah what, what what at the beginning of the year was nearly impossible it becomes uh very doable then but the fact that our students are getting this in ninth grade um, is is amazing. It's fantastic.
2: That's excellent. I um I want to I, I guess I want to start kind of wrapping up here. Um, if we could go around and and each of you maybe mention your first encounter with the Greeks, or maybe not the first, but something that that really stood out to you. If you can think about that for a moment and see if see if you've got something to say, inspire the listeners to, if they've never encountered the Greeks, why they should, where they might start, something like that. I, I, I'll I go first, give you some time to think about it. Maybe some of you already know exactly, but um, I guess mine was um, in college, my first year of college, when they still had Western civilization courses and it started with the Greeks and it was a, just a, a history course. And I was very interested in all of it in, um, I was really drawn to sort of what they call like the material history and what kind of houses did they have. And this was, this was very, very early stuff. And, I, and um, I was a music major at the time and uh, there was a really good library on campus um, for, for music collections and things. And, and, um, and, and so I kind of did a little project, me and another guy, they let us partner on this project um, where we did we, we looked into what um, ancient Greek music may have sounded like. Of course, uh, there's no way you can really know, but they construct, reconstructed different things uh, to, to sort of make a plausible case. This, this is somewhat what it might've sounded like. Um, and so that was, that was really interesting because it, it brought it to life in a way. So any artifacts I could get my hands on or then being able to hear the music it it really um, got me interested in in history, in, in that sort of way, in a way where you can you can uh, you can you can bring to life something from the past, and I was just blown away by the by it. I didn't I had not read anything from the Greeks in all of my my unschooling high school days, so this was brand new to me, and in some ways put me on a course that that I still haven't left. So that's my experience, uh, my first encounter with with really being inspired by the Greeks. I don't know if uh, any of you want to jump in next.
3: Well, uh, I'm not going to pick one. I'm going to pick three. Uh, The first one is in my Introduction to Philosophy class at Christendom College, we read the Trial and Death series of Socrates, and we started with Euthyphro, which a lot of people sometimes leave off, uh, which is a, a dialogue of a son bringing his father up for trial and Socrates being absolutely shocked at this and asking uh, a question that seemed to me at the time to be circular, uh, is something holy because the gods love it or the gods love it because it's holy? Uh, And it turns out that that question asked at the very beginning of philosophy is one of the key most fundamental questions that's ever been asked and has been fought over from that day to this. That opened my eyes to a whole new world. The second is, and I probably shouldn't be saying this since my wife is on the call, I have an ancient crush uh, and her name is Antigone. Uh, and uh, I, I love her, I love her character, I love that play. I love all Greek drama, but that play in particular and her consistency and her courage is uh, something that's, that speaks to me across 2,500 years. Uh, and the third, going back to your idea of material culture, we, we shouldn't forget that, uh, that the, the Greeks produce beautiful things as well. And I can't tell you how many times in Rome I've stood before the Capitoline Venus, which is a copy of Praxiteles' original uh, Aphrodite of Canidius, and just been absolutely beside myself with emotion, uh, looking at this beauty and what the Greeks were able to do and capture, and then bequeath all of this to to Christianity. So sorry, that was a three-part answer to a one-part question.
4: No, very good. I, and I, I, did, I already knew about Antigone, so... <laughs> So I was already aware. Um, yes, yeah, she's we're big fans in our house here. Um, for me, I have to go. It, it started in high school for me. Um, and it, it came back to what is, what is still one of my um, first loves, which is art and architecture. I had the, uh, during my unschooling, portion of my high school career, similar to Jordan's, but I was really lucky to, uh, we had a local parent who brought us all together and gave us the most fantastic history of art and architecture class, and um, I still remember it to this day. I still have books from it that I do with my own students, and I just remember being enthralled by all the achievements the Greeks had. And that sort of got me started to think about them and to delve into them. I had older siblings that were in college at the time that were reading these great works. They were coming home and talking to my parents about it. So I was hearing it. And yeah, when I went to college, I was just, I was just hungry to learn more. For me, really the literature. I loved I loved reading Homer. I I thought that was, I was like, wow, this is so much fun. Why didn't we read this earlier? (laughs) Uh, Why didn't I know about this before? And what a great story. And, and then delving into the histories and so on and so forth. And uh, I had someone ask me the other day, you know, how is it when you reread Herodotus every year? I said, I can't wait to reread it every year. I said, if I ever didn't teach this class, I think I might still go back and reread it. Herodotus and Thucydides and, and the Republic and all these things, I, I said, as always something new. It's like visiting with an old friend all over again. And um, yeah, so that, those are sort of my early takes on it. And it keeps driving me through today.
5: I'll jump in. Despite the fact that I look very young, um, when my brother came home from Vietnam in 68, he started taking me to local bookstores that basically sold eastern books on religion well i started reading that kind of stuff i'm i'm junior highish age at that point but they kept pointing at the greeks in a lot of that so all of a sudden i'm starting to get interested in the greeks and i'm in junior high school and i and i found them kind of interesting i didn't know what to make of them but i did find them kind of interesting Jump forward. I decided after three years of being a music education major that there were people who really had talent. I wasn't one of them. So I changed my major to philosophy. And one of the first classes I took was ancient Greek philosophy. And you got to imagine in the mid 70s, some of your teachers fresh out of grad school were kind of different. And I had a kind of different Uh, associate faculty member, uh, cool guy, I guess. I don't, you know, but he got me interested in reading the Greeks. So I read the Greeks, and once again, I started making connections. It's kind of interesting stuff. Now you jump forward, and I'm teaching classes uh, maybe as a part timer, maybe it was after I was full time, and so I started teaching the Trial and Death of Socrates Dialogues, the Euthyphro, the Apology, the Credo, the Fido. And these are great dialogues, just fantastic. And then finally, uh, this is four parts. Finally, I started teaching the Republic. And what I would do is I'd spend about 12 weeks in a semester, we're going to read the Republic because it introduces all the major questions in philosophy. So I started teaching the Republic and i probably the last five, six years that I was teaching at the college university level, I'm teaching the Republic every semester in my intro classes. And the more you teach that work and the more you teach the the Platonic dialogues, if the Greeks aren't where it's at in philosophy, then, you know, I don't know. You know, I know there are guys out there, the German Enlightenment, that's where it's at. No, 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 no. It's the Greeks. You got to read them. So it's sort of a a lengthy trajectory for me, but it's it's been an evolving love story, so to speak, Uh, especially with Plato. Aristotle, hmm, not as much, but I like Aristotle. He's just really hard to read sometimes, but Plato the Socratic dialogues, that's the stuff. That's the stuff. And that makes reading St. Augustine so much more interesting to know Plato. So that's my story.
6: For me, it was Greek literature. I'm a story gal, always have been since I was very little, but particularly Penelope. So I had never read the Iliad until high school. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. I graduated in 1990. And so that just tells you right there, like we had no idea even going to a Catholic school who we were as women, as young women, just no idea. And, you know, I won't get too far off on the tangent, but I kind of, um, you know, like I said, it was an all-girls school. And so we read the Iliad and we were like, oh, these stupid men, like that was our initial reaction. do it. Like, seriously, get a grip on yourself. We got to the Odyssey. And I already knew like, I was like, yeah, family and all of my students out there, please don't be scandalized. Because you know that I did not stay this way. But in high school, I thought to myself, you know, marriage, children, all of that can wait. I'm going to have a career, right? I'm a smart person. You know, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to establish myself as this scholar and, and teach at a university and write. And, you know, who needs marriage and children? Like I said, no clue who I was as a woman. But Penelope fascinated me because I thought she's subversive right she's subversive and looking back on it now i see that i think what was appealing to my heart to that part of me that was formed by our lord um is that she was subversive within the living out of her vocation right she didn't step out of her vocation she didn't step out of her femininity to be subversive and to protect herself and her son And eventually, as I came back to the church and and recognized um, my dignity as a woman and embraced my vocation as wife and as mother, I see her as just this beautiful portrait in Greek literature of the feminine genius. And so there's a book idea for you, those of you who write. I would love to see something about Pope John Paul II's feminine genius and Penelope because she just she was riveting to me and that's yeah so that was it for me
0: circumspect penelope right Uh, yes and i just got thrown into for me i just got thrown into a greek year i went to thomas aquinas college and you start out with the iliad the odyssey you're reading the tragedies herodotus thucydides you're doing euclid in mathematics um Plato in in philosophy and then then the uh, logic books of Aristotle, and then you just kind of keep going from there. So all of freshman year is just filled with this richness, you know, Plato asking questions, the important questions, even though feeling frustrated that the answers weren't there. but. You know, and then wading through Aristotle, looking at every possible way you could make an argument and which ones were, which versions were legitimate and which weren't, weren't. And then, as I mentioned, Euclid was just astonishing as far as being able to establish a process a, a science, a, a logic that went on. But then it got to read pre-Socratics after that as well. And then, you know, the, the physics, the de anima, the, the ethics, the metaphysics, and just. Just all of that was just, I, I just converted. So fall, falling in love with, with our Lord in a way that was different and then just seeing that this love of the truth and this relentless pursuit of that how, and how that matched together perfectly. That those, yeah, just the seeking of the truth there. I was I was hooked.
1: All right, fantastic. From here on my perch in the catbird seat, I wanna say thank you to all of you for this wonderful conversation. It's really been a privilege to uh, witness it unfold and appreciate so much all of your contributions to it and the time you've taken to visit with us. I know it's gonna be a great help to our listeners and a fun refresher for those who've been around a while. We would love to hear from listeners about who stands out to them in their reading this year as they're going through the Greek year. We'd like to hear from you guys how that's going. I want to mention, as I usually do, our show notes that we will have available with this episode. We'll have a lot of links to not only the Colby cast episodes where all these fine folks have, have um, contributed before, but also some other relevant episodes that will hopefully be nice companions to this episode. And I wanted to also remind the listeners again, or maybe point out for the first time, if you're new to Colby that there is a lot of support as has been said throughout this conversation, your Colby advisors. There are, are the Colby class Facebook groups where the families who are walking this road with you can can converse and exchange ideas and support that way and in addition to the main unofficial group. Lots of resources available starting with your advisors so please reach out but sooner rather than later and in, in instructors as well however you are making use of Colby know that everyone here is rooting for you and available to you. So, Therese, Don, Michelle, Carl, Jordan, Stephen, thank you all so much for this fantastic conversation.
6: Thank you, Bonnie.
0: Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks, thanks
1: Bonnie. Bonnie. Thank you, Bonnie. If you are listening to this episode when it comes out, come back tomorrow for another episode of the Colby Cast Convention. If you're listening to this sometime in the future, check our, our catalog in any podcast app or on the Colby website to pick another one of the convention episodes or several or any other from our growing catalog of episodes. So thanks again.
0: Subscribe to the ColbyCast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or a review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at Mary, our
1: mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.